Welcome to the Saving Lives Podcast. I'm Eddie Joe. Today is Saturday, the 4th of December of 2021 for the sake of historical context. And the topic that I'm going to be discussing today is the utilization of sodium bicarb or bicarbonate as I'm going to be referring to it in this podcast for respiratory acidosis. See, we all like to make the numbers pretty in our critically ill patients. There's a term that was not invented by me. It's called euboxic, which is where we don't like to see the numbers in the EMR be a different color outside of like the normal black color that it usually is. So we do an intervention, like for example, if the magnesium is like 1.7, we give two grams of mag so that we can bring it up to 1.9 and therefore the number is not going to be flashing like it's abnormal. That's that's kind of entertaining for us. It's kind of like a whack-a-mole type thing. Try to fix all the problems in our patients. It's not very Zentensivist of me in the Matt Shuba definition of Zentensivist. One of those abnormal lab values that we should potentially let ride is the increased CO2 in patients who have a respiratory acidosis. In other words, uh, an acidosis that is driven by an elevated CO2 or PCO2. In other words, We should not necessarily be providing sodium bicarbonate for patients who have an underlying respiratory acidosis. Now, I must be fully transparent and admit that I use more sodium bicarb than the average clinician. There was a study that was published in Lancet by Jabber and colleagues called the Bicar ICU trial that I've become quite fond of. In that study, they showed benefit of providing bicarbonate therapy for patients who had a metabolic acidosis, and in this case, primarily driven by lactate. And I've covered this post, uh, excuse me, this study before in a large post that I have on lactate and lactic acid. The scope of this post, however, is respiratory acidosis and not metabolic acidosis. To start off, and this is meant to be a spoiler, but, or meant to be a spoiler alert, whatever the kids say nowadays. I'm putting it out there that the data behind this is not at all robust. Better yet, it's non-existent and by no means is this medical advice. The first question is, why do patients develop a respiratory acidosis? And I'm going to tell you right now as a disclaimer, my explanation here is oversimplified. There are places that you can look this up if you want to get into the nitty gritty physiology, but I'm not that type of dude. If I was, chances are you wouldn't be listening to me because you'd be more bored than you are right now. But we breathe in oxygen and we breathe out carbon dioxide. I mean, this is obviously amongst other things, but you get the point. When somebody has a respiratory acidosis, there is basically too much carbon dioxide in the bloodstream to be able to breathe it out so it stays in your circulation. Generally speaking, the normal CO2 levels on arterial blood and on arterial blood gas is between 35 to 45. There are some people who are not normal healthy people who have underlying COPD. OSA, which is obstructive sleep apnea, uh, obesity hypoventilation syndrome, which we shorten up as OHS, and other ventilation impairing diseases that live with CO2 levels above this. These patients usually have a reciprocal compensation with an increase in their serum bicarbonate. And I discuss how we obtain serum bicarbonate in other posts and podcasts, which is actually my most highly downloaded podcast episode. But you're never going to use anything that I post as a source on your dissertation to Yale. So when people go ahead and produce too much CO2 or they don't ventilate enough, they end up with an elevated arterial CO2 in your blood gases that's, that looks like PaCO2. That means that the patient is either producing too much CO2 or they just can't get rid of it. Us humans do not like for the CO2 levels to get too high, so we've developed a brainstem 
We've developed brainstem chemoreceptors that notice when this level is too high. In turn, we breathe a little faster and or deeper to go ahead and blow off that CO2. This is where on the ventilator, as well as on the non-invasive machines, you can look at something called minute ventilation. And generally speaking, a normal minute ventilation is five to eight liters per minute. The way that we can calculate minute ventilation, this is not meant to be an arithmetic uh, podcast, but what you do is you multiply the respiratory rate times the tidal volume. And this number should normally be between five to eight liters. So what happens is that you get called for a patient who's unresponsive or minimally responsive with a history of OSA, obstructive sleep apnea, or OHS, and you go ahead and you put the non-invasive machine on them and you put them on BiPAP settings. Then you go ahead, you put them on a certain IPAP, you put them on a certain EPAP, then you notice that their minimum ventilation on the screen is only four uh, liters per minute. This is not going to be enough to ventilate this fo- these folks. So at this time, it's time to either crank up the pressures or increase the respiratory rate or do a little bit of both. Um, Here, you could also try to use AVAPS settings if you have a non-invasive machine that has that capability, or the patient just might need to be intubated. But obviously, that's not the scope of this particular podcast, but I just wanted to throw that out there. Because there are other additional differential diagnoses for this respiratory acidosis and other other causes for an increased PaCO2 uh, include acute processes that damage the actual alveoli and that impedes ventilation on these patients. The most common thing that we've seen over the course of the last two years is the recent uh, you-know-what. We could see in this, as well as other illnesses that cause ARDS, but also also in patients who have pulmonary edema, diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, et cetera, and the list could get extensive. But in these patients, they have some sort of disruption to their alveoli where uh, it's difficult for the patient to get air, oxygen through the alveoli, as well as for the uh, CO2 to exit the bloodstream through the alveoli and out the patient's airways. Then it's always fun to see the patient who's clearly volume overloaded um, with wheezing as well as retaining CO2, and they get diagnosed as a COPD exacerbation. So whenever I see a patient who's like clearly an acute heart failure who is being diagnosed as a COPD exacerbation, it's always fun to go ahead and slug these patients with some Lasix and some non-invasive ventilation and get them better within a couple hours. So now that I've, in simple terms, broken down that people could have a respiratory acidosis from too much CO2 production or not enough ventilation and explained a couple of the differential diagnoses that by no means are they fully exclusive, we have to keep in mind that sometimes we cause respiratory acidosis ourselves. And in an iatrogenic nature, we tend to deeply sedate and paralyze patients on the ventilator, prohibiting them from being able to compensate themselves via these brainstem chemoreceptors that I had previously mentioned. In my practice pattern, and as an aside, I do not check daily ABGs on my patients who are on mechanical ventilation because since I typically don't snow them, I try to keep them to a RAS of zero to negative one. I allow them, I set the ventilator just underneath where they, where I typically would set them, and I allow them to breathe over the vent and compensate for themselves. So what this allows me to do is when I walk in in the morning and I find that they're just riding the vent fully awake. And what I mean, what I mean by saying riding the vent, I mean that the respiratory rate is set at, for example, 16 and they're breathing 16. Their tidal volume is set at 450 and they're actually breathing 450. They're not doing any spontaneous breathing at all. Um, If they're just riding the vent fully awake with no spontaneous uh, 
breathing, then chances are I'm overventilating them with with their with their current settings. So if I want to go ahead and extubate them, you don't just go ahead and put these people on pressure support because you could you could bet money on the fact that they're going to go apneic. But what um, I do do is just bring down the rate. For example, let's say it was 16. I'll bring it down to 12. Let them overbreathe a little bit. Uh, in other words, I, I'll let their CO2 level go ahead and creep up a bit as they're not being overventilated anymore. And uh, then when they start spontaneously breathing over the set rate, then I'll go ahead and put them on pressure support and see how they do then. But again, this is not this is not the <laughs> I keep on deviating from the whole point of this podcast. But I uh, hope you appreciate my practice patterns as people just practice differently in different parts of the country. Um, but anyway, the the patients who you go ahead and you put them on pressure support and they just look at you and they're completely apneic. And while you're standing at the bedside, you're like, take a deep breath, take a deep breath. And they don't breathe. Well, chances are that their brainstem chemoreceptors are like, meh, they, they really don't have a, um, a reason to go ahead and breathe. Again, any of these that I mentioned before of like causing a respiratory acidosis ourselves can cause an increase in the PACO2 and therefore a respiratory acidosis that's not properly compensated for. In turn, this will cause a decrease in the pH of the patient. One of the reasons why you just don't want to go ahead and correct the respiratory acidosis that the patient is having is because the respiratory acidosis might actually be good for our patients. This whole question of providing bicarbonate for respiratory acidosis has actually been on my mind for basically the decade that I've been out of practice. Excuse me, not out of practice, but in practice. But I've never quite found a good answer to the question. But there's a pretty good reason to this. It's because there's zero clinical trials looking at it. And before we go ahead and try to make the numbers look pretty, we must understand that the respiratory acidosis that we're seeing in our patients might actually be good for them. The paper that I'm using as a citation, as one of the citations for this particular podcast and post, um, was published in March of this year, but unfortunately, it's not free for you to download. And this actually, you know, these folks explain all this way better than I do, but since you can't download it yourself, then it's my job to go ahead and explain it to you in my uh, lackluster, I guess, layman's terms. But in their paper, they go ahead and explain the pathophysiology of the benefits in a much better form than I ever can. But to explain the potential benefits of respiratory acidosis, I'm going to go ahead and list them. First, it improves oxygenation via the Bohr effect. Second, it increases cardiac output by catecholamine-mediated increases in venous return as well as in end systolic volume, and this all helps out the contractility of the myocardium. Third, there is a decrease with respiratory acidosis in the left ventricular afterload. Basically, what happens here is that with an acidosis, there tends to be a decrease in the SVR, therefore a decrease in the afterload, although this can go too far when the pH drops too much. It also causes microvascular vasodilation, and this in turn increases oxygen delivery as well as tissue perfusion. Not to mention that last but not least, it improves alveolar ventilation perfusion. But there could be too much of a good thing, and that's part of the problem. Excessive PaCO2 causes tissue acidosis, and this could impair tissue perfusion. We are, we are, excuse me, we could also see CO2 narcosis in those who aren't adapted to having elevated PaCO2 levels. Don't forget that if the patient is on catecholamine-based vasopressors like levofed or epinephrine, these tend to not work very well in patients with an acidosis. I'll dig more into this whole concept on a later date in podcast. But basically, if, if they get if the PACO2 is too high, 
and they're too acidotic, we're stuck looking for an exit strategy for our patients. So if you have an acid, which is problematic, the logical thing to do is to go ahead and add a base, right? I mean, that honestly seems like a no-brainer to go ahead and add bicarbonate when the respiratory acidosis becomes a problem. I wasn't born knowing everything, right? And baby doctor Eddie used to think that this would make sense, especially in lieu of evidence that suggests the contrary. But now that baby Dr. Eddie has more time to deep dives into all these concepts, which is the whole purpose of my social media uh, endeavors and my podcast is honestly to better myself and in turn bring you guys along with me, it's easier to understand why the easy solution of just providing a base to the acidosis isn't the solution at all. When we go ahead and give bicarbonate, our best intention is to make the acidic intracellular as well as extracellular spaces non-acidic. The problem with this is much better explained in other resources because it's all a bunch of organic chemistry that I'm not going to break apart in, that I'm not going to take apart in the podcast form because imagine, let alone just putting up with my voice, imagine doing uh, organic chemistry reactions in your head. But the easy way to put it is that when you metabolize sodium bicarbonate in the body, it ends up producing molecules of CO2. So if your initial problem with this whole acidosis is that you have too much CO2 that you cannot get out of the patient, then adding more CO2 to the mix does not seem like the brightest of ideas. So when we do have these patients that we are even thinking about giving them a base, one of the things we may have missed was an opportunity for our exit strategy. And what I mean by exit strategy is that you need to know what to do with the patient when there's nothing else that could be done before there's nothing else that could be done. If one has the ability to adjust the settings further on the ventilator to go ahead and compensate for this increased uh, CO2 in the serum, then it may not be such a big deal. You have wiggle room and you know you could go ahead and trust and, and titrate the ventilator accordingly. But if the reason why you're pushing amps of bicarb is to get the hemodynamics stable enough to switch the patient over to a transport ventilator to attempt to get them to an ECMO center, then I hate to say it, but you may have waited too long to make the call to get that patient out of your shop into somewhere that has a higher level of care where they could take care of them. The authors of the paper that I've cited that you could download in the show notes, actually you can't download it because it's behind the paywall. Well, in that paper, they went ahead and commented about how bicarbonate therapy can help patients who have a respiratory acidosis from, for example, severe asthma as well as COPD exacerbations. That seems a little bit weird to me, but the thought process there is that the acidosis in those patients actually increases the bronchoconstriction. So fixing the acidosis there might actually cause some bronchodilation. In addition, I suspect that those patients also have a metabolic acidosis that forms due to their acute and extreme work of breathing. So in these patients, uh, and again, there's no, there's no prospective trial that I've particularly seen uh, in those patients with severe asthma exacerbations as well as COPD exacerbations, a sprinkle of bicarbonate may actually help, although I've never really found myself to have trouble managing these patients otherwise. As we go ahead and finish up this podcast, we should answer the question of what we should be doing if a patient has a respiratory acidosis and we're not going to use bicarb because we've learned that it doesn't really help. And here is where we need to step up our mechanical ventilation game, as well as have a low threshold for ECMO or some sort of extracorporeal CO2 removal device if you have this available to you at your institution. 
every hospital that I've worked at, every institution, every healthcare system seems to have the preferred mode of mechanical ventilation that is their, quote, set it and forget it mode, end quote. I've worked at several institutions and they, ha they have all been hilariously different and each one is convinced that their mode that they all learn and they all use is the best. Now, if the current pandemic has taught us one thing, it's that we all need to learn how to be far more flexible with our technology and our resources. I can honestly admit that I never had spent as much time tinkering in front of a ventilator with my respiratory therapy friends, trying to improve the oxygenation and ventilation in these patients as I have during the current pandemic, because at the end of the day, they're extremely challenging and there's no doubt whatsoever about that. But we need to have a low threshold to call for an escalation of care if we cannot correct the respiratory acidosis. If despite all the best tricks that we have up our sleeves, whether you choose to paralyze your patient, pronum, APRV, oscillators, or any other strategies, if you're thinking about using bicarbonate but have not called yet for an escalation of care evaluation, whether it be for extracorporeal CO2 removal or ECMO evaluation, chances are you've waited too long to make that call. For those of us who do not have ECMO in-house, we need to remember that the transport ventilators are not as potent, for lack of a better term, than the ones that we have sitting in our respective ICUs. Not to mention that moving these patients or even disconnecting them from one ventilator circuit to place them on another ventilator circuit could be absolutely deadly. And this is particularly true if there's no wiggle room for even the slightest human variable that could throw a wrench in it all and lead to the, the demise of the patient. So if your patient is an ECMO candidate or beds are not available, you need to try what you need to try to save the patient's life. But informing the family of the fact that there's no evidence to support what you're doing to try to save their loved ones is absolutely necessary. Nobody wants to catch the family members off guard and say, hey, by the way, they were doing okay, but now they're not doing so well simply because um, you did not know or you did not kind of prepare them, so to speak, for the unfortunate outcome that they ended up um, they ended up. Uh, suffering from. So transparency here is the key. And because after all, there's no definitive trial in vivo that, that any of this works. It's all theoretical. So to conclude, my, my take on even considering using bicarb for respiratory acidosis is that you should have been prepared for the patient to go downhill. Um, you should have had an exit strategy. If you're thinking about using bicarb because the patient's too unstable, then um, I mean, it's it's likely not going to help. I don't have any data to prove that, but this this whole com concept from a organic chemistry perspective that it leads to an in increased production of CO two that's that's just something that um, that even though we can't prove in a clinical trial, that's one of the things from a from a chemistry perspective that should be happening in our bodies. So before you go down that rabbit hole of trying to give these people bicarb, please try to identify sooner that they're not going to do well and if you have some sort of capability to do some sort of heroic maneuver via ECMO or whatever it is um, please do it sooner rather than later and don't have so that you don't have to resort to trying something that has zero data whatsoever to substantiate it in this case using bicarbonate for respiratory acidosis i hope that you enjoyed this podcast it was kind of frustrating to go ahead and create it simply because when I was going down the rabbit hole of trying to find data of the CO2 from the from the bicarb actually creating a worsening acidosis that that really doesn't exist it's all it's all theoretical but I'd like to know what your thought is I know that we've all done this in the past but 
we don't really know whether it works or not. And just using chemistry suggests that it shouldn't work. Anyway, thank you all for your support. Hope you all have a great day. This is not medical advice. Bye.